But I, I get people that come into the office and they're not giving eye contact. And they're sitting down and you know, you know when you want to talk about something and you're not, don't know how to start talking about it. So, and I can sense it and I, and I say, well, let's lead into it. Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about other stuff. We'll eventually can get into the subject. And what happens is when they start beginning to talk about it, they say, I've never shared this with anybody. And right there I feel that they're getting to the point of living free because of the weight that people carry. And so when they begin to talk, they go, I have felt so much shame in this situation. And then they hesitate and not say anything. And it's interesting if you struggle with shame or have struggled with shame, Shame is an enormous weight that a lot of us carry that can just drag us down when we have no joy, no happiness, and we just carry this cloud over us that we're afraid someone's going to find out, someone's going to do something, or somebody's going to say something, and so we don't live the life that we're called to live. It's interesting, we will do anything to avoid shame. You know, it's interesting to me, like, when I struggle with shame or stuff that I've done in the past or I'm doing now, that basically in the United States I've discovered that we live in a shame-based culture now. You notice that? It's fascinating to me because Wikipedia is the most update uh, dictionary you can get because it changes immediately. You know, when a celebrity passes away, it's changed, Wikipedia. It, it shows you right there how they pass. And so when we looked at did the research, it's called a shame culture, but there's called a call-out culture as well, or what we call the outrage culture. Now let me tell you how I'm trying to sound hip with outrage culture and all this stuff. But let me put on the screen the definition of it. It says a call-out culture, also known as the outrage culture, is a form of public shaming that aims to hold individuals and groups accountable for, by calling attention to their behavior that is perceived to be problematic, usually a social media. And it's interesting because we see this with parents trying to get their kids in college, we see all this, that all of a sudden this, this does happen in our culture. And so also there's called the cancel culture too. And it's really like a twin brother. Let me show you what the cancel culture is. It describes a form of boycott in which someone, usually a celebrity, who has shared a questionable unpopular opinion or has had behavior that is perceived to be offensive called out on social media, canceled. They are completely boycotted by many fans and often leading to massive declines in celebrities' career and fan base. Our society used to be a guilt-based society. Now, I, if I was going to do a class, I can do a class on how to feel guilty, because I'm good at it. And most of you, if I said, look, every Wednesday we're going to have a guilt class, you wouldn't need to sign up. You're an expert in it. But there is a difference, and a big difference, between guilt and shame. And what is the difference? Look on the screen. Guilt is what my conscience tells me I did something wrong. Shame, I'm discovering, 
is my culture tells me that I am bad. And so follow me on this. When we struggle with guilt, and I, and I think people have the biggest hearts when they struggle with guilt because there's an inner compass within themselves that says, ooh, this was wrong. Now, even children have this. They know how to bypass it, but they, the children have this. So all of a sudden, when, like, my wife's a teacher, and she can look at the kids, and they're confessing. <laughs> you know, it's just interesting to me. And, and you know where she learned that from? From me. Because <laughs> she comes in the house and goes, okay, I'm sorry, I did that, you know, and stuff like that. She goes, no, I had something in my nose. And I go, oh, man, it's like guilty conscience. I'm confessing stuff I never, never even did. And so that's how guilty we feel. But a guilty conscience is a lot different from a shame-based culture, and it's different. I'll put it on the screen. In a shame-based culture, fear of losing popularity. A status becomes a motivation not to mess up. It is no longer is so much about right or wrong, but it's about public validation and fitting in. You see how we do it? That basically you have morals. You know, there's a lot of conservatives that say, you know, I'm going to wait until I'm married. But they're shame-based. They're shamed for doing that. And so therefore, they don't want to be shamed. So therefore, they're very, very quiet. And they don't want to talk about it. In fact, shame has a twin brother. It's called fear. Shame and fear are Siamese twins. They always travel together, and they can't be separated. So it's important to understand, when we talked about the parable, uh, the prodigal son, the prodigal son is a story that Jesus told. It's not a real story. It's called a parable. So if you go to heaven, where's that prodigal son? What's the story? He's not around. And Jesus made it clear, because when the word of God was written, and when Jesus was living here on the, in, in, as a human being, it was a very strong, shame-based culture. And so when we look at this, because I kind of set this up before, when he told this story, that there was tons of pressure to conform. And so I, it's interesting, when, when we conform to something, it's really what we call behavior modification. It doesn't transform you. It doesn't restore you. It doesn't change you. But to conform. And so when, we, when, we're, when we're very religious, or we go to church, or we go to uh, mass, or whatever it may be, some of us conform, because it's shame-based, rather than allowing the Lord to transform and change us to be what he has called us to be. So today we're going to look at the story and about, about the prodigal son. And I want you to look at it through the filters of shame and through the filters of fear. When we do look at this, the word, the word, the story really comes out. So let me give you the setting. The setting is this, and I talked about this last week, Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners came near to listen to him. Talk about Jesus. Tax collectors were shamed big time. Sinners were shamed big time. So Jesus was connecting with the tax collectors and sinners. So the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. And they were saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then he tells this parable. So basically the Pharisees were shaming the Son of God, which I think is thick some guts, but they were doing this. And so to be bluntly, their job was to shame people into conforming into the religion. And we see that today. 
follow me on the screen. The religious leaders tried to shame Jesus for associating with shameful people who were supposed to be canceled or shunning by people, by good people. But Jesus was not afraid of their shame. Instead, Jesus exposed their shaming techniques by telling a series of lost and found parables that ended with the story of the lost son. So when we look at this story, understand this, what is God's perspective when it comes to shame? Do we serve a God of shame or a God of grace? And so back on the screen, let me show you the characteristics. This is why Jesus um, talked about this, because the three main characters in the story. The first character is the young son, which represents the shameful sinner, represents your pastor, basically the shameful sinner. The second one, the older son, represents what we call the righteous saint, basically like the Pharisee. And so therefore he did everything right. The father represents God. So let's start looking at the younger picture. In those days, Jesus is telling the story. And he has to tell, he's telling the story that has Pharisees, a lot of religious leaders. He's telling the story about the culture. And this story was to shock everyone that he's talking to. Because imagine all of a sudden that you're a very prideful family and your son comes to you and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. Which means, Dad, you are dead to me, right? That's what it is. I want my inheritance. Now for me, I would say, you little... I wouldn't tell you what I would say, but I would say this, it would be pretty blunt. The little narcissistic, spoiled little kid whatever it is, that basically, and the people that are listening to this story are very appalled. How could a son ask their father for his inheritance? That's, you, no one has heard that. And so you can tell they're really into this story. And a lot of people probably expected the story to end. Great, karma, isn't it great? Now he's stuck selling, you know, feeding the pigs and he's broken all this stuff, he deserves it. But no, Jesus keeps going with the story. And so, you know, when you think you, you know where a story's going, and you're going, and it kind of makes you feel better because karma's great. And then he talks about this, and then karma's great. You know, when I, on my spare time, I type a karma fight. I love karma. Am I the only one that loves that? I guess so, okay. And so, Therefore, in the story, he challenged them. Because in the story, he said, I'm going to come to my father and ask him to be a hired hand. Which, when a father disowns a son, he can do that if he wants. But it's not, it, 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 it's not guaranteed. So this is where it gets really crazy in this. Verse 20. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. This is where the listeners of the story are going, you gotta be kidding. Why, I don't get it. Why is he being filled with compassion? Follow me. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called the son. But the father said to his slave, slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, Put it on him, put a ring on his finger and his sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. This is ticking the people off that are listening to this. Because they don't want to hear this. 
They want karma. They don't want to hear about forgiveness of the love being brought back in the family. Back on the screen. In the shame-based culture of Jesus' time, a child who did something as shameful as his younger son would probably be considered by his father dead to me. If he returned home, he would have most likely been shunned and treated as invisible. And if he was lucky, he might have been allowed to join the hired hands. So Jesus tells the story how a father is celebrating. This is outrageous to the listeners. And so the next part of the story talks about the older son, which represents the righteous one. It represents the son that did everything correct. Now my brother, you know, it's interesting that um, my niece came up to me and said, how was my dad like when he was my age? Now, I want to say your dad was nuts, okay? Your dad was nuts. And your dad right now comes across as a perfect father, but he was crazy at your age. So I said, what did your dad say about him? And he goes, he was really good. And I go, we'll stick to that story. And that was it. But the thing is, what's interesting about this is when it comes to redemption, we, we can receive forgiveness, but when somebody else forgives someone that we're hurt, oh, it's a whole nother story, isn't it? It's a whole nother story. And so this is where, for me, as an older son, I was pretty good. I was pretty good. And the thing is, when my brother's given grace and all this stuff, it does bother me a little. You know, like, wow. Because we have this tendency, I did this, I did this, so I deserve this, right? And, and so therefore, what was interesting in the story here, he canceled his debt. He said, no, you're fine, we'll celebrate. Look at Luke chapter 15, 29 through 30. Listen, for all these years, this is the good son, I have been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not his brother, you notice that? This son of yours came back, you devoured your, who devoured your property with prostitutes, who killed the fattened calf for him. You notice that he had the history of his brother. He knew exactly what his brother did. And he pulled it up. You ever do that? Like, you know, you forget your own sin, but man, when somebody sinned against you, you can remember for years. Yeah, you remember back in 1978? No, I don't. Well, let me remind you. <laughs> and I say, we, we did this once. We went, um, I went to my brother, and I go, I'm going to tell mom, you know what? That's what we said, you know what? I forgot what you know what was. But I just said, I'm going to tell you know what? And so we grow up shaming people, don't we? Shaming others. And so I imagine most of the listeners here would be on the side of the older brother, that the younger brother deserved absolutely nothing. But let's move on. The father who represents God. But take a look at the answer to the older son. He said, then the father said to him, son, you always with me. And, and, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice 
because, now get this, this brother, right? He put it back. He, son said, you're, he said, your brother. So he goes, you're a brother in Christ, you're a family here. Of yours was dead, and now he's come to life. He was lost, but now he's found. There's some profound theology in this, these two little verses. Back on the screen. We, we are God's son and daughters. There is nothing that we can do or fail to do that we change that. We, we are the ones who see ourselves as slaves, either because we see ourselves as shameful sinners who have to earn our way back into God's favor, or we see ourselves as proud saints, religiously slaving away to please God, and therefore God owes us something. Both ideas remove us from the most basic truth of ourselves. The most basic truth is that we are God's beloved sons and daughters and not his slaves. Did you notice? He renamed his younger brother here as well. Follow me back on the screen. The older brother calls his younger brother the son of yours. The father rightfully calls him the brother of yours. When we live in a shame-based culture, we lose sight of our true status. We are God's beloved children, which makes us brothers and sisters. When we shame each other, we disagree with what God says about us. And when we seek to strip each other of our dignity based on what the most is true about us. So you might be saying, wait a minute, Kevin. So we just let shameful behavior go and we don't do anything about it? You know, I've learned this. God is a very forgiving God. But sometimes he doesn't remove the consequences, right? He forgives us, but I have to live with the consequences. I have to live with myself. And so I've had, I've had this, you can call me all kinds of names, but I'm calling myself worse because it's an inner struggle of guilt or shame that's going on. Why did I do this? Why did I allow this? What am I doing? Do you see? And so we've got to be careful. Look on the screen. We do not need to be threatened to be punished for our sins because we are naturally punished by our sins. But the ordinary world, we like to threaten to punish people for their sins. Shame is the most common weapon we use to do this. And Jesus is telling this incredible story, a very important story. Back on the screen. Jesus seems to be telling us that God exists beyond the ordinary shame-based world where we can earn our worth. God's world is a world of grace. Jesus invites us to move into this amazing world of grace by faith. This is why our sign in the front is no judgment, but only love. You know, I get criticized more, not in the church, but outside the church of that sign. It's so funny. It was my idea to put the sign up. If I knew I was going to get criticized, I would have said, all judgment, no love. Look, <laughs> I'll fill the church out there. And I can fit in that church, you know. But when we stop shaming one another, it's just love. It's just love. Do we speak the truth? Oh yeah, we speak the truth in what? Love. That's what the Bible calls us to speak the truth of. So we're not a shame-based church. We are not an outraged culture. We are not a cancel culture. Why? Because on the screen, God does not shame us nor cancels us when we get it wrong. 
And so this is where I think shame is very detrimental. Back on screen, shame produces fear. Fear causes people to hide. The fear of hiding takes shape in our secrecy, hypocrisy, denial, realization, and defensiveness. Shame becomes the enemy of honesty and truth-telling. An atmosphere of grace gives people the courage to be honest and to tell the truth, even when the truth is ugly. Shame says, stay away, stay, stay the same. You are canceled. Grace says, come home, face the truth, and be transformed into the real you. You are welcome. I think many problems we have not only come in this country, it's because we're shaming the not. One thing that we do is when we don't want to be shamed, we shame, right? If I don't want shame, I'll shame you. I'll give you the first shot. You ever done that? This is where, this is marriage one-on-one. When your wife gets mad at you, and you know she's mad at you, start yelling at her first. <laughs> and put her on the defensive. That's what we do. When we know we're gonna get shamed, we'll, we'll shame them. And there's a lot that we can learn about ourselves and about our culture if we stop. Because a lot of things, even the racism problem in our society right now, we just shame. We just shame back and forth and push it down for the next generation to deal with. And this is where we need to stop and listen. Especially a white person needs to really listen. Yes, just because it's not directly affecting me doesn't mean it's not real. And I need to listen. And I need to be part of the solution. And that's important to understand that. That we're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Back on the screen. Jesus told a powerful story to let us know that it is safe to come home. When a home is grace and the graceful and a graceful home is where sinners and saints who see themselves of slaves to shame and fear of transformed into the beloved children of God. We are invited by Jesus to move beyond the shame, move beyond the guilt, and realize that you are a child of God. I am a child of God. And that's based on the character of God, not based on what you did or what you're doing. That's what's amazing about grace. Grace transforms us. Grace changes us. Shame puts us in secret. Shame hides us. And we're not the men and, and women of God. We need to come out of the shame culture that we live in. It's interesting because this is what Jonah was talking about. Uh, you noticed last week, my wife, she's wonderful. She texted me during the sermon last week. Like I'm, I have the phone here. She said, you keep saying Job, you're preaching on Jonah. Did you guys notice that? Yes. Why don't you say something? Because <laughs> we got new people in the church going, didn't he say Jonah? Now he's preaching about Job. No, he can't, can't remember what he's preaching on. <laughs> so if I say Job and I'm talking about Jonah, just say, you mean Jonah? You say it out loud. It's okay. And I don't have to go home and go, oh, man, I'm an idiot. You know, I might as well feel like an idiot in front of you guys. And so this is where the journey of grace is all about. This is why Jonah, Jonah, was told to go to Nineveh. Not Job, Jonah. And so Jonah, in chapter 1, says, Now the world of the Lord came to Jonah's son, the Amity, whatever you pronounce that, saying, I know I butchered that. God at once to Nineveh, that great city. He sent them to the great city. But moving from the ordinary world into this extraordinary world of grace, 
Let me share it with you something. There's many times that I've had people come up to me and said, I just want you to know I am a fair. I just want you to know that I'm struggling with my childhood because I was molested. I just want you to know that I'm struggling with so much guilt because I had an abortion. I just want you to know. And the thing is, what's interesting, am I a grace-based pastor? Or am I a shame-based pastor? Because grace-based, when people get stuff out, there's where the Lord can move. If I get up here and shame-based, then it just quiets everybody into a behavior modification. Aurora, wherever she is. <laughs> she left. She put down my first service. <laughs> Aurora. I dedicated it. You prayed for it. Is Aurora going to grow up in a shame-based church? Or will she grow up in a grace-based church? That is dependent on you. May the Lord bless you, and may the Lord bless his word.